Welcome to the first episode of the 80s and 90s Cricket Show, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the two decades before T20 and DRS to tell the stories behind the scorecards. I'm your host, Gary Naylor. Each episode examines the career of an iconic player in the first innings and looks at a series or tournament in the second. You can find us at our website, 80sand90scricket.co.uk, and if Twitter is your thing, at CrickShow80s90s, where you can have your say. Today, we're focusing on the second half of the career of a player who really does warrant the cliché, the man, the myth, the legend, Sir, soon-to-be Lord, Ian Botham. Later, we'll look at England's controversial 1990 tour to the West Indies, the first covered by Sky TV, and a tour not short of controversial incident. I'm delighted to welcome our three guests, men who know the inside track on both our subjects, Pat Murphy, author and veteran BBC cricket reporter, Peter Hayter, author and columnist of the cricket paper, and Simon Wilde, cricket correspondent of the Sunday Times. Good day, gentlemen. Hello. Morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, just before we we start to look at uh, Ian Botham, we'll just set the scene. 1981. The country is rioting. It's all kinds going on. And I'm 18 years old, and I'm sitting at Old Trafford. And out comes Ian Botham, recently relieved of the England captaincy. It's a slate grey day. We've seen extremely slow innings by Chris Tavare, uh, slow innings by Geoffrey Boycott and by uh, David Gower as well. And then all of a sudden there's this blaze. Of course, the name that was given to that series uh, forever will be known as Botham's Ashes. Um, that's often seen as the kind of high point of, of Ian Botham's career. Um, he was 25 at the time, but he was still a, a force to be reckoned with after that but if we split his career into two halves up to and including the ashes in 81 uh, Ian Botham had played 41 tests of his 102 he had 1977 runs at 32 and 202 wickets at 21 in the second part of his career he scored 3233 runs at 34 and took 181 wickets at 36 that's in test cricket so the batting maintained its level but the bowling very much uh, went away and some people would say that he took his wickets mainly through personality rather than through the swing the pace and the variations that got him to that 200 wicket mark but we'll explore these in more detail with our guests i'll start with you if i may peter is that fair i think it is fair and it's no coincidence that uh the second half of career, he just got uh, his injuries just started to catch up with him. Um, he'd had a long-standing back problem, uh, which through force of personality and sheer strength, he bowled through in the early part of his career. And then bit by bit, it it just crept up on him this this back condition. Um, of course, he didn't help himself. One might say by his lifestyle. Let's put it that way. He. Um, he never. Uh, his idea of um, preparation for a test match was to drink enough to fall asleep and then wake up and shake off the hangover and, and, and play the next day. That's slightly stretching things, but you get the picture. He ate and drank as much as any man I've ever seen. And over the period of time when his uh, physical strength waned in terms of his back, he was just getting a bit older and he didn't do any training. So uh, the two things combined... 
to mean that he was putting even more pressure on his back as the time went on. I mean, it's, a, it's extraordinary that he carried on bowling as long as he did, to be perfectly honest. You don't need to be quite so agile and lithe to bat, and, um, you know, he never lost his ability or his technique or his eye, but the bowling just got harder and harder for him. Yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned there the, the lifestyle, and I'll, I'll bring Pat in on, on this one. I mean, he both played under five captains after uh, Mike Brearley. That's Keith Fletcher, Mike Gatting, Graham Gooch, David Gower, and Bob Willis. Obviously, they could see kind of what was, was going on, and Gooch in particular had a, a rather different approach to preparation. I mean, how, how did those captains try to change both of them, or did they not bother, or did you just let the free spirit be a free spirit? Well, Keith Fletcher didn't really count because he was captain for just one tour, 81-2 to India. The others were friends also of both of them. But Graham Gooch was the one who tried to grasp the nettle. Graham Gooch's mantra throughout his career was, if you fail to prepare, prepare to fail. And he obviously supervised, stroke marshaled Ian Botham into um, oblivion. 1992, when he was England captain, he never played again after the Lord's Test in a test match against Pakistan. And obviously, they would be contrary to each other in terms of philosophy. But Gooch wasn't quite the round head that people liked to portray. He liked to drink. Liked his wine. He tended to fall asleep at nine o'clock at night if you're out for an evening with Gooch. He always wanted to book a table early with Gooch. Uh, I used to think to myself, it must be the quality of my company that sent Gooch to sleep, which is the same with everybody else. Um, Graham was always a great one for saying, I've got a new pub for you, mate. He was a great, great one for tipping you off about those sort of things. So don't run away with the idea that it was a fundamental clash of um, lifestyles, because Gooch was not um, a, a, a po-faced uh, Puritan. Fundamentally, Peter Hayden's right, Ian ran out of road as a bowler. My opinion was that he was, as a test player, he was too successful too soon. By the age of 30, he's more or less done it all, and therefore boredom set in. And when he was on the field, he actually liked to do something. I remember an occasion, a, a county match at Leicester, 1986, he'd just come back from one of his suspensions for uh, admitting smoking pot. He bowled 43 overs on the trot one Saturday. <laughs> he took six for something, whatever it was. Roebuck was the captain. I sat there thinking, Ian, why are you doing this with them age 30 years of age on the clock, but the body of a 40-year-old? He just liked to bowl. He liked to be involved in that sense. He was a victim of his own excesses and his own inclinations. If he was here today, I'm sure you'd say, well, there you go. I had a great time, did it my way. But I think he was too brilliant, too successful, too major a match winner, too soon. Yes, I, I, I want to bring Simon in on, a, on a, a point that you've sort of alluded to there, which, which is this kind of ferocious appetite and will. Because even in the decline, you've got these these high points there's the 86 uh, 87 ashes and then and the 1992 uh, world cup how did both them kind of rouse himself if you like to bowl 43 overs on the trot or to deliver these these peaks amid a, a, a long decline was it simply will or, or did he have external motivations um well i think it was will Really, um, I mean, the problem is he was having to play so much cricket that uh, it wasn't it wasn't feasible for him to to perform at a high level all the time. I mean, he, you compare him to the modern players like James Anderson or Ben Stokes is a better example, probably as an all rounder. 
both of them, you know, played 250 matches, first class matches for his counties. Well, you know, Anderson and Stokes don't simply don't do that. So, you know, the, the point that he's he didn't physically look after himself is valid, but he, he was in, his workload was impossible. So he was never going to be able to keep it going. He was trying to be a county player and an international player at the same time. It wasn't realistic given his workload. You know, he, and he had an appetite to bowl and bat and field all the time. He wasn't going to stand back. So. He wanted to do everything. It wasn't possible to maintain the high levels of performance that he'd got as a young man. But occasionally he could rouse himself. I mean, he, you know, he was trying all the time, I think, but he couldn't always do it. Even in the late 80s, he was bowling 40-odd overs in county cricket during the Ashes series against Australia in 89, when he featured briefly. But he was physically, you know, he was broken by that point, really. Um, it's, it is amazing that he did the things he did later on. The, the, the World Cup in 92, he managed to perform the way he did, but he did actually run out of juice at that tournament um, by yeah. the final. He was exhausted. But Simon, Ian had a point to prove then, didn't he? Because there was the controversial alleged latitude that Gooch and Mickey Stewart gave him by allowing him to be in Panto and then join the New Zealand tour late, uh, get himself mm. up to the West Indies for the World Cup. He really felt he had a point to prove. And for a time, he was uh, indomitable and, and match winning. But that's what he was like. He loved to try to prove people wrong. And in 86, 80, 87, when he took on Merv Hughes to get that 100 uh, at Brisbane, the last 100 of his test career, uh, it set the tone for the series, and he loved having the hex on the Australians. He was just 31 then, but that set the tone for that series. He just needed motivating, and the last hurrah uh, kept coming. And the Australians always motivated. I think mm. his best performance at the World Cup in '92 was against yep. Australia, wasn't he? he? Got four wickets, and he opened the batting, didn't he? He was the pinch. He was the first pinch hitter, in fact, for, for yes. England. Yes, uh, got Did a fifty. In 85, cast your mind back, gents, the, the Ashes series in this country, he was the quickest bowler on either side, took 31 wickets at 27, took some blinding catches too. He'd rested his body in 84-5, didn't tour with England to India, and that did him a power of good. And I remember Paul Downton, the England wicketkeeper in that series, telling me that he was really quick, and it was effort bowling. It wasn't that silky smooth holding type bowling. He really put it in. And the body didn't rebel. Simon makes a very good point about um, the amount of cricket he had to play away from international cricket. You wonder what would have happened with central contracts with someone like Ian, who would be would have been looked after so much better. But then again, he just loved to play, so one might have detracted from the other. And then you ask yourself the question, could Ian have survived in the modern era when you need to be so much more professional in your approach, you need to train so much more, you need to watch your diet, you have nutritionists telling you what to eat and what not to eat. And now for Ian, cricket was always, well, deep down, it was fun. It was his, him expressing his creativity and his sense of fun and adventure. It was all an adventure. He was easily when, bored. He was, he's yeah. easily bored too, wasn't he? Yeah. Can you imagine him in the bubble uh, during this oh, summer? He'd gosh. gone absolutely... <laughs> gosh. All but kinds you, of... This, this is a point, a good point about Ben Stokes, actually, because I think Ben Stokes is the nearest to Botham since Botham in all areas. And, and central contracts certainly have helped protect him and his body. And I can see Stokes having a very, very productive period in his 30s, mm. all, all things being equal. I think he's a very, very correct player. I don't think he'll ever be as great a bowler as the young Botham was. But as a fielder, he's magnificent anywhere. Botham was superb in the slip. And as a young man, superb in that 25-yard area, either side of the wicket, in the covers, mid-wicket, etc. Great with runouts. But Stokes has the nod over him 
in terms of all-round brilliance as a fielder. But I think central contracts and the financial incentives will prolong Stokes's career to meaningful comparisons with Ian Botham eventually. He won't have to bowl so much. The Correct. thing about Stokes is he's got an Anderson, he's got Broad, he's got Archer, he's got Wood along the side yes. of him and Wokes. Yes. He can bowl four over spells here and there. Beefy would, once you got the ball to him, he wouldn't let you take it out of his hand. He just he wanted to bowl and bowl and bowl, and he was probably the best bowler, so there was that much more on him. He was a wonderful bowler in that late 70s period. He injured his back in 1980, playing mm. for Somerset at Oxford. He was never fundamentally the same again. But in that period, 77 to 80, he was absolutely superb. Mm. Swung it late, uh, both ways. And at pace. And he had a, a, a ferocious bouncer as well that was an important part of his uh, his armoury back in, in those yep. days. I want to just pick up on a, a, a point there that, again, you've alluded to. What was it about Botham that made such, and retains actually, such a strong connection with the, the British public? Because there, there are sports stars that are admired, there are sports stars that are uh, uh, beloved, but Botham seems to have a kind of unique sort of halfway point between those because he's both admired and and loved. And, you know, even now, many, many years after his playing career has has finished, obviously he's had a media presence. There he is being elevated to the House of Lords and people are raising (laughs) a glass to uh, to the great man. Yeah. Well, he, well, he lived, out our, lived out our fantasies for a start. He was a, a rap scally and a rascal. People smiled when he talked about uh, Ian Botham. Uh, in the mid-80s, I'd suggest he was probably one of the most famous Englishmen in the world because of his various exploits. The leukaemia research, research walks were fantastic. But he played the game of cricket the way we'd all want to play the game of cricket, particularly the way he batted. We'd lie in the bath and wish we could bat like Ian Botham, wouldn't we? That cheek, uh, that chutzpah that he displayed when he batted and grinned wolfishly down the pitch at the bowler. Uh, He's also a good sport, by the way, on the field. The umpires really liked uh, Ian Botham, apart from one exception, uh, because he played the game in the the right fashion. And fundamentally, he was larger than life. He wasn't really typically English. I think only Dennis Compton in the late 40s can rival Ian Botham's affection with the British sporting public. It may all be that Ben Stokes eventually will match that, but I mm. think that I think Botham just I, lived I, I, out our fantasies. Yeah. I want to bring Peter in on on this for May because Peter, when you've worked with Botham, do you get the impression that this was the man that we were seeing, or was there an element of kind of artifice of playing to the audience, or, or is it a little bit of of both? Because often, as a man gets older, they they start believing their own publicity and they start yeah. playing to camera and, and and so on. And obviously, there's an element of that. You don't hit Craig McDermott's first ball for six without playing to camera. But mm. but was it so deliberate, or, or was it, it always just bubbling there i think he's an accidental showman you know he was just a larger than life cricketer and a larger than life bloke who in a in his perfect world he would hit every ball for six and take a wicket with every ball there wouldn't be any in between he just he was attack 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 for a guy with such extraordinary talent and gifts he was also very humble actually in particularly initially in his career and i think that sort of stuck with him throughout he wasn't racked by fear of failure necessarily because there was always a reason why he failed and it could be the sun glinting in his eye off a 50p piece or um, a seagull flying too low or there was always he always had an excuse for not doing particularly well but deep down 
I think he really was driven by wanting to prove himself all the time. And what Simon said and Pat said about proving people wrong was also in there. But people loved it. The people who came across him as on the field loved, not only did they love his attitude towards playing, which is to squeeze every drop out of every lemon, but the fact that he, he wasn't, dare I say it, a Kevin Peterson type character uh, who at least initially believed his own hype and just thought he was the greatest and no one else mattered. He was a team man up to a point, although not quite as bad as Boycott, but it was about what he did on the field that, that mattered to the team rather than the, the other way around. But I, I, I think people genuinely responded to his open-hearted pursuit of the pot, the impossible and his love of rising to a challenge and proving people wrong. And I'm sure that's what the public loved about him. They also knew that he was liable to crash and burn at any time. So it was terribly exciting watching Botham uh, from afar and also on the field because you never actually knew what was going to happen next with him. So as, as Simon has, uh, says, his flaws were, were, were everyone's, were human flaws, human frailties were, you know, he, he was never going to die wondering about anything. And that includes everything. So, uh, you know, sometimes he, he, he put himself at risk and, at, and in danger because of those things. But he would act first and, and worry about the consequences afterwards. And that's a very endearing characteristic among uh, a sportsman, especially someone playing for England, especially someone who could play so well as he could for England. Yeah, and I, I just wonder whether, and, you know, I, I was, say I was 18 at the time, but... Even I can remember that silence that greeted his his pair at Lords, his swan song as England captain, and the MCC members turning away, and you, you didn't have have pity, but you thought, you know, that diminishes the MCC members rather more than it diminished uh, both of them at that time. And you know, there's there's so many sort of incidents. There's the elephants across the Alps, uh, you know, and there's the the delivery on the big words. You know, there's a bit of of kind of Muhammad Ali uh, about it. You know, there was the big mouth, but there were the big deeds as well. But speaking of those deeds, I, I want to ask Simon. I mean, there's so many myths about uh, about both of them. There's the you know the the fe- ongoing feud with the chapel there's the running out of of jeff boycott there's the libel case with imran khan i mean how much of this was was good copy for the the journos being spun and how much of it was was real yeah the, um, a lot of the both uh, stories and legends w- w- were exactly that really they were they were legends and they were burnished by both himself particularly in chapel story I've, i did a lot of digging into that incident and spoke to quite a few people who were sort of there at the time or involved with both at his club in uh, melbourne at the time and it, it wasn't the version that he put forward but he wanted to give out an impression that he'd taken on ian chapel who'd recently been the australia uh, ashes winning captain and then shown that he could push around he wanted to pick himself up to his future England teammates, really. Can um, you just just remind us what it is again, legends, Simon, because I think it's a kind of brawl in a car park, isn't it, or something? Well, there's a brawl in a bar in the Hilton Hotel in Melbourne, I think, and Botham was playing for university in Melbourne, and Ian Chappell was playing for another Melbourne club, and they'd they'd had a these matches went over two weekends, and one team had bat one week, and then the other one the next, and Botham had been bowling at Chapel and and, and the rest of it, and the, the, there'd been a lot of big talk, and they'd met in a 
in the bar of the hotel and Ian Chappell had been deriding English cricket and Beefy shoved him off his stool, bar stool basically. But this turned into, by the time Beefy had finished telling the story, he'd, he'd punched him and chased him out into the street and, you know, the police had come and rescued Chappell from a good beating, you know. So he gave it, he, he told the story for all it was worth, you know. But Graham Stevenson, um, who was there at the time, said, sadly is no longer with us. He he said it was handbags rather than anything bigger than that, you know. But, but there's many stories like that. They're running out of, Jeff Boycott in the test match in New Zealand. Bob Willis said in one of his books, published shortly after the incident, said Beefy was exaggerating uh, his motive. Beefy was a terrible runner in his early days and ran people out by accident as much as anything, you know. Um, so we can go on with these stories, but they all burnish the legend, really. Did you not think he ran Boycott out, Simon, upon purpose? Uh, quite a few people involved in that game say he didn't. Okay. Fair enough. I tell you what is true about that time at Melbourne. Uh, Ian Botham was bowling with the England players in the nets. It was the Melbourne centenary test, and he'd only played uh, one one day international in the summer of '76, aged 21. And he was saying to all the England players, Willis, Underwood, Greg, Not, etc., while bowling. Of course, when I'm playing with you lads in the test team next summer, uh, he mm. was all organised, all mapped out, massive self-confidence, no question at all in his mind. I think he told J.K. Lever that um, during that week in that the centenary test that he should be playing in the centenary test. He said, I should be here. I should be in this team. You know, he'd never played before. <laughs> Yes, yeah, the the ability Brilliant. the ability to to fool oneself is is always very useful in in anyone in high level sport in high level anything actually. So uh, you've got to start them young, I think. <laughs> I found it interesting that later on in his career, when when you asked him to talk about these things, and I think we've all done books with him or yeah. about him, uh, he's very reluctant to talk about his own achievements in in glowing terms. That the eighty the innings at Headingley in eighty one is a case in point. When I did that first autobiography back in whenever that was, 1723, it, um, <laughs> I thought that would be the easiest chapter to write. I'd just say, right, Beefy, what happened there? And he'd just tell me everything. And it would chip off the tongue, but it was like getting blood out of a stone. He, I mean, he literally said, oh, it was a bit of a slog. Uh, I, I smashed a couple over there, and one went over the top and blah. You know, he, he really didn't want to blow his own trumpet about that or about anything that he'd achieved on the field which made writing books with him quite hard he was quietly he was quietly much happier with his old trafford hundred wasn't he oh yeah uh, oh definitely yeah magnificent innings yeah but uh, you're quite right about uh, his modesty when he got his hundredth test wicket very very quickly in 79 got to the double ridiculously quickly he went out for a, a drink in a pub with mike hendrick and bob willis just celebrating and he mm. said to and mike hendrick told me this uh he picked up his glass, said, cheers, lads, uh, 100th test wickets, chuffed a bit. He said, Hendo, 30 of them are yours, mate. Mm. Because he maintained that people like Hendrick, with their nagging accuracy, and Willis to that matter, got him wickets at the other end where he could extemporise and go through all the variations. And Botham was always very generous to his teammates, especially those who weren't as massively talented as him. For sure. I mean, the, the, another case in point, the Headingley match, you know, he always says it should have been called Botham, you know, not just Botham's match, but Botham and Willis's match. And, yep. and he's right, actually, because uh, yep. Bob's bowling in the second innings was what actually won the match. I mean, Ian set up the match to be won, an unwinnable match to be won, and then, and then Bob bowled them out. And the other one, um, uh, he was always going on about Chris Tavery and, and how... Uh, without Tavery, he couldn't have played that second hundred at Old Trafford. He loved because, Tavery. He loved yeah, it. 
and it's hard to love Chris Tavares batting, I'll tell you that. Well, I can tell you it was very hard that morning if you paid for a seat and you'd already got through your spam sandwiches, I'll tell you that. Well, once you've seen one ball, you've seen them all with him. Well, Tavares told me about that innings when I was researching my biography about both of them, and this is a most un comment, as you guys know. He said, for me, standing at the other end, I felt so emotional. He mm. said, I was overcome by the awesome power. He said, mm. for me, it was an out-of-body experience. Wow, I thought, well, a, a lot of us experienced that while watching Chris Tavare back. He <laughs> <laughs> yeah, didn't want to come back in. Yeah, it was out of ground, wasn't it? I, I, want <laughs> to finish, I want to finish this section off with a, with a question for all of you, which I'll, I'll, I'll start with, uh, with you, if I may, uh, Peter. And it's perhaps a, a bit of a, a false uh, dichotomy, so to speak, but should we be grateful for what we got or disappointed that we didn't get more? Oh, blimey. Well, a bit of both, obviously, because he was such a, you know, a fantastic swing bowler at high pace. And you would always have wanted that to go on for longer and longer, as with Jimmy, for instance, Jimmy Anderson. And some of his innings were just so thrilling. You didn't want them ever to stop either. So he, of course, you'd want more. But I think with how he was, the character, the way he approached the game, the circumstances at the time, I think we got plenty. And I'm so glad that he had that last World Cup. And it would have been such a great way for him to end his career if England had actually won that World Cup in 92 in Melbourne. I think, I don't know, I was there. So I'm, it was just one of the great nights. And you, you felt it was set up for Ian to ride off into the sunset with his only World Cup winner's medal. It would have been a fitting end. Uh, on balance, I think we got as much as we were going to get, but of course you always want more. And that's the great thing, always leave them wanting more. Indeed. Uh, Pat, you share that view or take a... I, I do. Don't forget, Ian was in his 37th year when he nearly helped England win the World Cup in 92 and given uh, given his proclivities and, <laughs> and, and how he squeezed the grape of social opportunity, I reckon that's, that, that is not a bad uh, stint he put in. I, I keep thinking about his ability as a batsman. Mickey Stewart told me he could have been Test Cricket's highest run scorer at that time if he'd mm. been hungry enough. Now, that's quite mm. a tribute. There were a couple of innings that he played for, for Somerset which were quite astonishing when he was 30-plus. I remember Edgerson, he got 138 not out of 65 balls, ball turning square for Norman Gifford. John Hampshire, the umpire, tough Yorkshireman, told me, I've never seen an innings like that. Everyone out there was dumbstruck. And at Wellingborough, Sunday League game, 10,000 crammed into the ground. Both came in at 18 for two, 175 not out, 13 sixes. Jeff Cook, the captain of North Ants, told his players they'd witnessed one of the great innings of recent times. Jeff didn't talk like that normally. Tough Yorkshireman indeed. He said it was an astounding innings. We just couldn't bowl at him. I think more fondly of Ian Botham's batting than his bowling because inevitably he was going to run out of road as a bowler. But his batting, I think, was at times sensational of the highest class, 14 test match hundreds. He was not a slogger. He could defend. Pakistan, oval test match, 87, batted all day for 51 not out to stay. With a hangover. With a hangover, indeed. No change there, then. You know, he, al he always maintained as a player that he'd never had hangovers. I never believed that, did you? No, I didn't. <laughs> I mean, I, I, felt, I felt his technical ability with the bat was at least at the level of the likes of Jacques Callas, who, of course, averaged 20-yard more than, the, than both of them did. And uh, we, we should have seen perhaps a little bit more of the, of the batting. But I'll, I'll finish this uh, section off with, with Simon. Simon, um, your view on grateful on what we got or disappointed that we didn't get more? 
Uh, grateful, I think. His first four years as a test cricketer were phenomenal. And it was such an adventure. And he was doing so many extraordinary things that people didn't think were possible, really, that he could maintain such a high standard with bat and ball. That I mean, I think he surprised himself. He didn't know he was that good. Um, so... I think there was a sense of adventure about those years that we'll, he couldn't sustain that later. And also the expect post-81, there was an expectation that he'd do great things, really great things. And that was part of his problem, really, the expectation. He, he wasn't going to live up to the early stuff, really, physically, uh, um, for one reason, but also just because the dynamic changes, really, there is that expectation. So, And I don't think central contracts, you know, that had they been brought in in those days, would have... He, he was not. He was an, an, an untamable force, really, and, and I don't think taming him would have worked, really. So I think we should be grateful for what we got. I, I think we should too. So we'll we'll wrap up there on the uh, later career of Ian Botham, a man who very much lived by his own rules, and ironically is now in the legislature making rules for the rest of us. Uh, <laughs> there we go. We move to the second part of the first episode of the 80s and 90s Cricket Show, which looks at the 1990 tour to the West Indies. England had been well and truly Steve Ward, amongst others, in the 1989 Ashes, a a series in which, believe it or not, England were fancied, but uh, lost 4-0 and could have lost 6-0, before going out to the West Indies to face the might of the uh, West Indian team, just to show how strong they were. The previous three series produced an aggregate score of 14-0 in the uh, West Indians' favour. But um, there were many new things going on uh, with this tour. Not least, it was the first one to be covered by Sky Sports. Uh, And it was still a, a rare and exotic sight for us to see an England cricket team live on tour. Um, there were new players, uh, two of them you may have heard of, one Alex Stewart and uh, Nasser Hussein, made their debuts. And there was another member of, of the squad, uh, David Capel, who we must mark his recent uh, death uh, at the tragically young age of, of 57. He was an important part of the squad and by all accounts an extremely decent man. Uh, so England go out to face the music in the first test in the cauldron of Sabina Park, which had a reputation later well-founded when a test match was actually called off at Sabina Park due to the nature of the pitch as being a bit of a minefield, a bit of a West Indies stronghold, and one where you'd uh, want to make sure that you had uh, plenty of x-ray machines on hand. But extraordinary events uh, happen. So um, I'd like to start, if I uh, may, uh, with you, Pat. The uh, the first test at Kingston, what was it like? Well, the most extraordinary event was the first wicket to fall that Devon Malcolm, hardly known to be a great fielder, Devon Malcolm ran out uh, Gordon Greenwich for 32 off a misfield. They picked it up. He always had the bullet throw. But England had worked very, very hard in the winter on their fielding and uh, in the terms of their preparation. And they thought, oh, there's an easy one to Malcolm. The old firm of Haynes and Greenwich were clocking up yet another meaningful opening partnership. And after that, it was pack of cards time. England bowled brilliantly. Angus Fraser, 5 for 28, 164 all out, having been 62 for naught. But the key thing for England is that they established a lead. They batted and batted and batted. Alan Lamb, brilliant, got 132 his first Test Match 100 abroad. And thereafter, they're under pressure all the time, the West Indies. And England got a famous victory uh, by nine wickets. But it was an astonishing feeling 
that the England had actually beaten the might of the West Indies after being lucky to get nil in various test series leading up to 1990. People just couldn't believe it. And then after a washout at Georgetown, we got to um, uh, Trinidad and England nearly nicked another one to make it 2-0. But that day, that first day uh, at Sabina Park, it was just amazing when you consider the golfing experience from the West Indies and their quality and that of this nascent, inexperienced England side. And it was a very, very proud day for English cricketers. And if I may say so, the travelling fans and the media were chuffed to bits as well. It might just be worth looking at the attack that uh, England established a, a lead of 200 on first innings against an attack which featured Patrick Patterson, Ian Bishop, who was ferocious at that time, Malcolm Marshall, Courtney Walsh, handy second change, and then some spin from Carl Hooper and, and Viv Richards. And you go out against those blokes and establish a, a first innings lead of, of 200. It was, it was. And that was with Ambrose. Oh, unbelievable no stuff. Ambrose at the time as well no no he came in it came in later and he was part of the uh, the fight back from the West Indies uh, I mean Simon what was what was your impression of of one of the more extraordinary test matches probably in the history of test cricket never mind the history of English cricket well it, it must go down as one of the biggest shocks uh, England have produced um, I mean it was as you've already alluded to it was a remarkable strategy really England went there with um, little hope really but with a plan for once they had a plan and the plan was to bowl pace and England didn't bowl an over of spin in the entire series Mm. which I think is unique I don't think any team has ever done that certainly not in a test series of four or five matches not an over of spin but the plan worked they stuck to pace they were accurate I think they they kept the squeeze on the West Indies and obviously they'd like to play their shots and and that was part of England's success I guess that they, they squeezed the West Indian batsmen, and they frustrated them, I guess. It was a tactical triumph, really, although ultimately the series wasn't won. It wasn't even drawn. England gave them a hell of a fight, and, and Gooch and Mickey Stewart had a plan, really, and it was a, it was a brilliant one, really. Yeah, I mean, the, the fighting fire with fire was as much the case with the, with the batters as, you know, Alan Lamb, extraordinary record against the West Indies, six of his 14 Test match centuries, and... Uh, you know, serial leather sniffer, uh, Robin Smith uh, as well, um, wearing a few, wearing a lot, you might say. Um, but the two of them in the engine room of the middle order there, they didn't let the West Indians just bowl to them and they didn't show any fear. And uh, I say fire was fought with fire. Um, Peter, you were writing uh, the column for uh, Viv Richards. What was He was captain of the West Indies and, of course, uh, the epitome of Caribbean pride. How stung was he by, by the shock result? Oh, I think it hits him hard. I mean, the he did had, had said at the start of the series that he thought the England selectors were potty, that was his word, for leaving out David Gower and Ian Botham, which was after the 89 disaster against Australia, there had to be some changes, but the changes were seismic. I mean, Gower was out, Botham was out. There was also that rebel tour to South Africa, which took a couple of others. Gat went there. So England were weakened beyond measure theoretically, before the start. And I think Viv was sort of just not bothered by the noises coming out of England that we're going to get fit, we're going to get the players organised and pick some younger players and maybe try and, as you say, fight fire with fire. And Viv just sort of ignored all this. But then when when they came out 
and um, bowl as well as they did on that first day. And Pat's quite right. The, the catalyst, of course, was Devon Malcolm. The ball hitting either his knee or his shin as he attempted to field it, uh, which was the signal for a second run to be called. And then he picked the ball up and arrowed it in above the stumps, and, and um, the rest, as they say, was history. But Viv could have been out. Malcolm got him, uh, and he could have been out twice before he was out in that first innings. He, there was a big uh, appeal for leg before off Gladstone Small and a, and a catch behind off Angus Fraser. And then I think Devon was the one who shot them because... Uh, and of course, Devon was playing in his in his native Jamaica. Uh, Viv again had been fairly offhand about Devon coming out, called him Devonian rather than Devon. I don't quite know where he got that name from. Uh, and you know, the, the sense of shock afterwards that that England has had won a Test match in the West Indies for the first time in nineteen seven since nineteen seventy four. They played twenty nine Test matches in that time and not won a single one. I think Viv just thought it was going to be a walk in the park. There was no Gow, there was no Beefy, there was no threat. And then as the series went on, Viv's health wasn't great during that series, by the way. He he was struggling with a condition that was quite painful for him, so that when they got to Georgetown for the second test, I'm not sure he was actually going to play in that match. And that's when I got to talking to him about, about what had happened. And there was definitely a sense with him that, apart from the absolute shock of this happening that there were people in the Caribbean who were starting to think, well, that great side that had been beating everyone for so long, is that side actually in decline? Uh, you know, Greenwich and Haynes were still great players, as was Viv, Richie Richardson and those great bowlers. But there were people in the Caribbean who were maybe looking for signals or signs that changes might have to happen. And Viv had a bit of a love-hate relationship with the West Indies board. He was bigger than the game out there and certainly bigger than they were. And so there were always people in the background looking for you know, reasons to maybe uh, undermine Viv's authority over, over how things were. So there was a, he was under a lot of pressure, which explains various, my, in my opinion, various events that happened later on in the series. But, of course, none of that would have happened had, one supposes, had the ball not hit Devon Malcolm on the shin. And, it's, and Simon is right, and Pat are right, they did lots of fielding practice over the winter, but I don't think, I don't think they, fielded, they did fielding practice with the ball hitting Devon on the shin. <laughs> so what, that was... what, what, one thing to say, Peter, about this, the Nehru Cup, that much-derided tournament in India that England went out to in October, November, six weeks. Mm. They played this um, one-day tournament. They got to the semis, played well. Mm. And they also had lots and lots of team meetings, nothing else to do. That's when the huddle started. Gooch started mm. the huddle the first game on the outfield, and everybody now picked it up thereafter. Mm. And Jeffrey Boycott was in the nets with them for a few days at Headingley, yeah. getting people to bowl at them from 18 yards mm. to get mm. used to the extra pace. Mm. Lots and lots of preparation fitness training, etc. And so therefore, when he came to the West Indies, they were in a better nick than many of us realised, particularly yeah. the West Indies players. Apparently, Jeffrey Boycott shocked Nasser Hussein in the nets one day. He got the, the old bowling machine and people pinging it down. And he said, you're four for three already. You've been caught in the slips. You've nudged one down the third man boundary, but you're four for three. Yeah. He did not mince his words. And that did the England players some good. So therefore, they were more prepared and more battle-hardened than we all realised at the start of that first test. And Devon, Devon was the, the surprise factor, I think. I mean, he did. He was so quick, Dev. And yeah. if he bowled straight, look out. And if he bowled straight and full, look out. And Viv, actually, you know, he never wore a, a helmet in international cricket. I think he might have worn one against... 
a Kent lad called Duncan Spencer yes. later on. Towards the end. That's right. But he did actually, I'm not sure whether this is well known, he did actually have a helmet in his cricket coffin during that series against England because after what bat, batting against Devon in the first test match, I think he also thought time might have been catching up. Yep. Was his eye as good as it had been? He, he, was, he did have access to and was prepared to wear, I think, a helmet in that series had, had one of the pictures been dodgy enough for him to use it. Yeah, I mean, when we look at the the bowling, Devon was certainly the kind of shock troop and the uh, the, the vanguard. Mm. He ended up bowling more overs than any other English bowler in the uh, mm. series. In fact, he was only one behind Ian Bishop. So a tremendous workload for uh, for the strikiest of strike bowlers. But the mm. the man who certainly got the the wickets before he was injured was was Gus Fraser, sort of yeah. dobbing it in at eighty eighty one miles an hour, just back of a length. What was it that um, that Gus Fraser was doing to get eleven wickets at the extraordinary average of fourteen point six. Well, he got he got some legs, uh, uh, got some early practice. Quite rightly, he'd looked a little bit laboured because he was that kind of bowler. And I remember England in the last warm up against Jamaica. There was nothing on the game. They bowled Gus for fourteen overs in the heat on the trot, and that did him a power of good. And he looked much better for it. And then he got five for 28. It was a very, very fine bowler then. He'd just gone into the, into the England team. And the defection to South Africa did him a lot of good because it meant he could solidify his place. And that, that rib injury was a very, very bad blow for England. And also Graeme Gooch breaking a finger in mm. Trinidad. If Gooch and Fraser had been fit for the entire series, you never know. You never, you never know. Well, let's let's move to the the next match. There was the washout in Guyana, and then one of the more controversial matches in the in Test cricket of the the nineties, the uh, the Trinidad game. Now, I, I should set the scene a little here, in that. I think we're all used to the professionalism of cricket. We've already alluded to central contracts and stuff like this and and rules coming in about 15 overs per hour and only bowling 13 and everybody shrugs their shoulders. It's the way things are. But, But back then it was much more of a kind of... It was the latter days of it, but there was more of a kind of code of honour. And certainly Brian Lara in his um, Cowdery lecture was very forthright in saying that cricket's code of honour was broken in in this match. Um, Simon, do you want to start us out in in saying what happened in uh, this test at Port of Spain, which had the West Indies lost, they would have gone two down with two to play? Yes, well, first of all, West Indies were captained by Desmond Haynes rather than Viv, I think possibly for the re- reason that uh, Peter was alluding to earlier. But um, So it wasn't Viv doing the, um, the, 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 the slow overrate on the last day, but uh, Desmond Haynes. But basically, England had, a, had a, a, a lowish run chase against the clock on the last afternoon with the, with the light and the weather not great. And so it became a case of uh, the West Indies slowing down their overrate as much as they could in order to deprive England of time. And this is what they managed to do. And in, in the course of the run chase, Graham Gooch was injured. He had his hand smashed by uh, Ezra Mosley, I think. Um, yeah. So th- th- there were various factors at play here. But he, the bottom line was, with no no minimum over rates, possibly some fairly uh, weak umpiring in terms of telling the players to get on with it, the West Indies managed to drag out their over it to such a degree that England were about 30 runs short when the, when the game ended. Um, it was pretty blatant, pretty unforgivable. I don't think we should be too po-faced about this, no. uh, should we? Because uh, in the Barbados Test match, Alan Lamb, England captain, he got the over rate down to 11 uh, overs per hour because England were on the back end of uh, 
of an impending defeat. In 1967, Brian Close lost the England captaincy for some blatant time-wasting in the county match at Edgbaston when he was leading Yorkshire. So I don't think we should be um, too pompous about uh, the opposition and their, their delaying tactics. Um, England down the years have been quite pragmatic about such matters as well. I very much take that view that yeah. there's a certain sense of of kind of uh, arrogance, if that's the right word, in in sort of uh, the English defending the sense of fair play and the spirit of cricket and and so on. England have got plenty in their copybook where an yeah. element of cynicism has has crept into it. But what was what was Viv's view on on, on this and how much influence did he have over Desmond Haynes as, as captain, Peter? In that instance, I think none. I think the fact is that um, everyone knew what, what what everyone was doing. Both sides knew what was happening. In defence of the West Indies and, and Desmond Haynes, I don't think it was playable, frankly. I think uh, when they came out, I mean, they needed 150 to win on the last day <clears throat> and they were they were going to get them. There was no issue. And out of a clear blue sky, this massive storm came and took them off the field. And when they came back out to play, the, the run-ups were swampy. Desmond said afterwards, when he was able to talk in between being shouted at by people, that he could hear the bowlers when they were running up, pace after pace, and it just sounded like they were running through puddles. It was ver- And they were fast bowlers. You know, they, there was no option for them, nor should they be required to, to bowl spin. Uh, the, the light was perfectly good until it went later on. So I have, at the time, it was terrible for England because here they were, 1-0 up, in the West Indies, having been given absolutely no chance of, of getting away from there with anything other than a drubbing. They'd won the first test. They were about to win the second on merit. And the worst they could have done then was drawn the series, which would have been a monumental achievement. So everyone's dander was up. English supporters, English players... The media, I have to say, and we are, of course, impartial at all times, we're thinking, my God, what a story is this we're about to cover? And then the rain came and, and actually should have wiped it out and should have just erased it. But then having declared it fit for play, which was an interesting decision, shall we say, don't forget the Sky Television cameras were broadcasting this back to England for the first time ever. The people pulling the strings there did not want this match to end, uh, match abandoned, uh, as a draw. Gooch's injury was very unfortunate. I remember the incident in, at the time with Laurie Brown, the physio, thinking it was dislocated and trying to put it back. It was, in fact, broken, this finger. And there's an amazing photograph of Gooch looking like he'd been shot when Laurie was trying to manipulate the what he thought was a dislocated finger back into place. Thereafter, what happened is almost a side issue because as time went on and they did slow it down and one of the reasons they slowed it down was they couldn't run in the run-ups it just got darker and darker you might have said well come on you've got one chance to beat West Indies in West Indies just stay out you only need another 30 I think it was Jack Russell and David Capel actually were out there at the end and they just couldn't see the ball, and this is not a ball being bowled at 82 miles an hour, it's being bowled at 92 miles an hour, so there was that to be taken into account. It was just really bad luck on England, I have to say, and I, you, you think to yourself, if the roles had been reversed, would England have bowled 15 overs an hour? Would they have bowled 14 overs an hour? No, they wouldn't. They'd have done exactly what West Indies did. So there was a lot of criticism at the time uh, aimed at the West Indies. As for how Viv felt about it, I think when he picked up the baton again for the next test in Barbados, he thought, we've got away with one. We have survived. 
uh, and now we're going to show them what we can do. And that's exactly actually what happened. Yeah. Uh, just to set a scene again for some listeners who who won't necessarily have, have watched uh, Sky Sports coverage, this was all in the days before the Barmy Army and the huge travelling support that England have. There would be some England supporters in the ground, but not uh, to the extent that it is now. And no. what I would suggest then is that the, the media had a, a much greater influence in, in shaping opinions. There were no interviews with England fans sort of outside and and either being pragmatic or being disappointed. So, um, Simon, Peter's already said that, you know, a, a fantastic story was sliding into a, a, a less than fantastic story. What, what was your view on, on the press reaction to the go slow, as it was called? I mean, was there um, outrage in the in the in the press box? Um, did they think, well, we we had one great story taken away from us, which is you know England's extraordinary mm-hmm. extraordinary going two nil. We want to get another big story, which is the uh, the bully boys of the the West Indies cynically denying our young guns. Well, I was sitting in a newspaper office in London covering the story, <laughs> not, that, not, not in the press box. I need to spe- uh, need to stress, but that doesn't mean I, I'm not qualified to yes. talk about it. But um, I mean, there was a lot of indignation, as we've already discussed, about this um, possibility of going tuna up being dashed from England's uh, grasp. But um, clearly, there's a, there's a lot of moral indignation, which is probably misplaced, really, because we'd have done the same thing. But I think there was also, surely, the, the, the key, the, the, during that last day of the, of the Trinidad test, OK, England had failed to score the runs and win the match, but also Gucci's injury had changed everything. He, you know, he'd broken his hand. And I think, as I remember, England kept quiet just how bad the injury was, although it was pretty clear from the photographs and the TV coverage how bad it was. But I think England didn't initially announce that Gooch wouldn't play the next test. They they, they almost suggested that he might bat again in the innings at one point. Uh, And that was basically to keep the West Indies guessing. I mean, he couldn't hold a bat, but yeah, you're right. They did try and... um keep it quiet the extent of it well interesting you say that gents loath as i am to push uh, the bbc on this particular point but i remember <laughs> a close of play and, and one thing sympathy towards the fourth estate your deadlines were shocking obviously yeah. on the yeah. indies tour uh, so commiseration about that we were lucky because <laughs> we were doing things live but i remember we, we we interviewed gooch on the boundary edge at the end of the game in the in the gloom uh, and he was asked about his finger, and he said, it's bust. Yeah. He yeah. made no there were no qualms at all that his finger was broken, and he'd gone, and that was it for the end of the tour. So so we knew not long after the end of that test that Gooch was out for the series. I think they were mainly trying to keep it quiet for the rest of the game, to be fair. Oh, right, um, yeah, yeah. Rather yeah. than, you know, I think it was perfectly obvious that he had a broken hand uh, by the end. Yeah, I, I think it was, um, you know, it was in its way a great cricket story, but uh, it wasn't the cricket story that the people back home wanted, and nor obviously that the England players wanted. And therefore, that I don't know whether moral indignation was fueled by uh, by that, but there was there certainly was moral indignation. And uh, and let's talk about the BBC again, there, Pat. Um, <laughs> the, your lads on live commentary, they're they're not uh, shy when it comes to moral indignation. From time I quite to time. agree with you. Well, they I, certainly I, were in those I, days. I, I, I absolutely I absolutely agree, and we, we, we may well come on to Rob Bailey's dismissal. We, we uh, certainly in the, will. In the Barbados Test match. Yeah, I, so want, I, I just want to make the point that um, listeners might not be unaware that there's a lot of pressure on the press in particular in the West Indies tour in terms of deadlines and all the rest. So, and often you, we're running around, we try our best to help out as well, uh, interviews, but we just didn't get that 
we, we were just too keen to get that on uh, get get that on air. But yeah. fundamentally, for me, that was a great game. It yeah. was a dramatic, yeah. uh, high octane, intense test match, wasn't it? It was. And by the way, talking of David Capel, he made a very, very useful 40 in the first innings. Yes, he did. The West Indies were bowled out for 199. Malcolm was brilliant again, and, and so was Fraser. And Capel took a wicket. But that was probably David Capel's best innings for England. The, sec- the 40 mm. he got in the first innings, which enabled them to have a lead of 90 or something like that, which they almost converted into victory. Yeah, and I, I do remember my first uh, example of putting my foot in it, because I was watching Capel batting. And he seemed to be very comfortable. And I was sitting next to Alan Lamb for some reason out in the stands. And I said, uh, he's looking good, isn't he, uh, Lammy? And, of course, the next ball he was uh, caught as a mostly bold Curtly Ambrose, which point Lamb just got up and walked away. <laughs> so well, that taught me a lesson. Well, I think we'll, I think we'll metaphorically walk to um, Bridgetown Barbados. So... Uh, we're, we're at a series score of 1-0 to England with two test matches to play. Uh, West Indies bat first. And the um, one of the less celebrated batsmen, Carlisle Best, makes 164. No doubt mm. commenting on each ball as he did. Absolutely. Best <laughs> knocks it to short extra. There's no run. And yeah. um, he got good support from Viv Richards back captaining the side with, uh, with 70. West Indies make 446. But England are still retaining this indomitable spirit which they carried from the Jamaica test another century for Lamb uh, Robin Smith making 62 and they've still got a toehold in the game making 358 Desmond Haynes makes 109 and England have an unlikely target of 356 in fact in those days an impossible target of 356 um, but they run into a run into a bowler who was uh, who would get on a roll sometimes, and when he got on the roll, there wasn't much you could do about it. Uh, Sir Kirtley Ambrose, who, somewhat to my surprise when I looked it up, had had a very disappointing uh, 1989, in which he'd taken only 11 wickets in his six matches at an average of 46, which is not what we expect of Kirtley Ambrose. But um, in the second innings, the monster was back, and it was 8 for 45 as England were blown away. So, um, Pat, what's your, uh, what's your memories of Bridgetown? Five wickets in uh, five overs to Kirtley Ambrose, I seem to remember. Do you remember, gents, that every time Kirtley got a Test match wicket, his, his mother would go outside <laughs> of the house and, and ring the bell yeah. in yeah. Antigua? I don't know if you guys ever tried to get anywhere near uh, Mrs. Ambrose, I did once on one of those tours, and I got short shrift. I was supposed to go and <laughs> go and sling my hook, and yeah. it, it followed shortly afterwards when approaching Kirtley, and he said, "Kirtley talks to no one." Yeah, <laughs> did you guys get that as well? Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, well, David Norrie, my colleague, uh, our colleague who used to work for the news as well, was authorised by his paper to pay um, Kirtley a princely sum of about five grand after one Test match. I think it was when they won in Trinidad when he bowled him out there. Right. Um, and so he couldn't get close to him. So he had a chat with Viv and said, um, Viv, can you have a word with Kirtley for me and um, see uh, see a field play ball? So Viv went into the dressing room, came out again, and um, and he said, I'm sorry, David, uh, Kirtley's not interested. And so then, and Kirtley then came out and said to him, um, if you want to talk to Kirtley, don't talk to Viv, talk to Kirtley. He's, and David said, well, can I talk to you? He said, no, and walked off. <laughs> <laughs> and in recent years when he's come over when West Indies have been touring he's been terrific to listen uh, yeah, to yeah. he's a really good talker but his mum 
his mum was fearsome as well, wasn't she? <laughs> from, from a distance, what what I found remarkable with Kirtley Ambrose is he'd go into this almost kind of wide-eyed manic state because he, he took seven for one, didn't he, in Australia at one point as the Trinidad spell. But the adrenaline was, was clearly pumping with those extraordinary celebrations after he gets a, a wicket. And yet his control was, was McGrath-like in... Never bowling a bad ball, working out batsmen, destroying tails. I mean, how did he? How did he manage to keep that adrenaline pumping whilst retaining that extraordinary control? Simon, have you any thoughts on that? He, he was a particular. I don't remember at the time another bowler quite like him, given that the, the pace and the height and the and the bounce and then the, the accuracy was made him stand out from almost anybody else. Really, I don't think there was another bowler quite like him. Um, he was, and then McGrath he was came later. He was effortless. effortless. I mean, I was—I actually went out to that game for a holiday, and I sat in the stand for five days watching that test. And um, I remember thinking that at sort of tea on the fifth day, that England were going to get away with this; they were going to get a draw. And then Kirtley bowled this amazing spell and just blew them away. And he—and he he just sort of effortlessly went up through the gears, even though that everyone playing in that game must have been exhausted by this point. It'd gone, you know, a five-day match, pretty tiring, and he would have bowled. Well, he bowled in the match, I think he bowled almost 50 overs. So, you know, he'd have bowled well over 40, and then he gets the last five. Um, the, the, the new ball so was to, crucial, to, wasn't it, to be fair? That's right, yeah. It was It was the second new ball, wasn't it, I think, that did it. Um, yeah. But for him to then just step on step on the gas at the at the end and um, give England nothing was, was, was amazing. But I don't think there was a bowler quite like him at that time. There's a quirky thing with um, the only bowler... <laughs> Uh, cautioned by the umpires in the entire series for intimidatory bowling was David Capel. <laughs> yes, yes, and he he was flattered, wasn't he? He, loved he, bowled, he bowled a couple of bouncers at Kirtley, and uh, the umpires <laughs> said that's enough of that. <laughs> the Kirtley had been winging them around everyone's ears uh, for the rest of the match. It's quite amusing. Um, I mean, the, the, should, should yeah. we talk about Lloyd Barker and Rob oh, let's Bailey talk about yeah, Lloyd Richard, Barker yeah. because obviously, Peter, you had been associate with Viv during that period on a literary, yeah. ba- literary basis. But the fact that Viv made such a fuss, the finger flapping and running mm. towards the umpire and all the rest of it for the alleged mm. catch down the leg side, that indicated the pressure that Viv, that Viv was under, surely? You're absolutely spot on. I mean, you know, he'd come, I don't think he was fit enough to play in Barbados with the, the, the problem that he'd had that, a, that he ruled him out of the previous test match. But he said, I've got to go, I've got to play in this game. His innings, his batting against uh, Devon was extraordinary. He did not wear a helmet, but he batted uh, as though he thought every ball was going to hit him on the head. He got 70 in very quick time. A couple of them went virtually straight up in the air and those short square boundaries just crept over the line. It was frenetic. It was frenzied. It was Malcolm against Richards. This is almost the the great warrior's last stand. But all the pressure that had built up over the previous um, month or so came to a head here and he could not lose. Viv Richards could not lose a test match, let alone a test series to England. It just was not going to happen. So whatever it took, he was going to put it out. And that, I think, is where the incident you know, erupted from that sense that he simply could not allow England to beat him and to beat his side. So this ball from Kirtley to Rob Bailey, who was only playing because Gooch had broken his hand in Trinidad, was pretty innocuous and a leg side nothing. And it flicked off Rob's hip and Geoffrey Dujon took it down the leg side. He didn't actually have to travel very far. It was a really relatively straightforward take. 
the next thing we know, I mean, Kirtley, if you look at, I don't know whether we can see the footage even now, but I don't think Kirtley was that interested. But Viv just ran up the pitch and said, virtually told the umpire it was out. Uh, it was an appeal of sorts, but it was a sprint, an appeal that took him 24, 26 yards to make from his position at slip towards where Lloyd Barker was. Now, Lloyd Barker was the umpire. It was the last ball of the over. He was already heading off to square leg for the, to start the next over. And he stopped and turned when he saw Viv was coming and wasn't going to stop himself and raised his finger. In a very odd way, it was almost like he was flicking a fly away or something. He just stuck his finger up. And, of course, Rob Bailey was standing there aghast. He got back into the dressing room and, and um, later, I think, he kicked the fridge door and forgot he'd taken his boot off and damaged his toe quite badly. But it was the start of the moral outrage, if you like. The moral outrage that had been tickled by what happened in Trinidad then just went through the roof. And the it has to be said, on the radio, one of our dearly departed colleagues, Christopher Martin Jenkins, was particularly riled by this um, and not so thinly veiled accusations of gamesmanship and cheating and put the umpire under pressure, which bubbled, I mean, the match had to be played out first, but once the match was played out and England just couldn't survive curtly and therefore lost uh, in, in the end quite comfortably, uh, when we got to Antigua, Viv's home island for the next test match and radio programmes were going and and there was almost a whole day's phoning about, not just about Lloyd Barker's decision, but about the reaction of the English media to Lloyd Barker's decision. And there was even some suggestion that action should be taken against CMJ, against Christopher Martin Jenkins, because of what he said on the radio. It was, it was absolutely mad, the whole thing. And it did develop into something else, which I'm sure we can talk about in terms of the Antigua test. But my recollection of those... 48, 72 hours, was that it was all on. The West Indies had come back in the match. Viv had been vindicated. He'd come back and overseen his troops and they'd won the game. He wasn't interested in whether um, what people felt about what he'd done with Lloyd Barker or whether he'd put the umpire under pressure. He was going to do everything he could to win that match and, and that that's exactly what happened. We should point out, again, for perhaps uh, listeners who were not around uh, to see this uh, series on TV or, or out there, that these were local umpires. It was the days uh, before neutral umpires and panels and so on. And sometimes these umpires were, were you know, they were not employed by the ICC and on training courses and stuff like this. And they were, they were doing the best they, they could. And um, having Viv Richards run at you and telling you it's out um, would intimidate anybody. <laughs> And, I'd have given um, it. You know, it's exactly. <laughs> well, like, uh, Gary, I, I can just uh, one little anecdote. I can, uh, being in Barbados uh, during that period, um, straight after the game, as Peter's mentioned, uh, CMJ being uh, inflaming the situation and people being very angry towards Christopher Martin Jenkins. Um, I was walking in a supermarket the day after all this, and um, somebody came up to me. I looked a bit like CMJ, tall and glasses, and he said, "Are you are you Christopher Martin Jenkins?" And I sort of backed <laughs> off towards the uh, towards the meat counter and sort of denied it you know and said no 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 but I sort of made a hasty exit but I should probably say yes really but I was a yeah. coward at that time as well radio was still very important in the Caribbean and you'd mm. be having breakfast in your hotel and the radio would be on and yeah. all the waiters and indeed the waitresses had a view of that incident because it kept being playing and playing ad nauseam in the lead up to the Antigua test match you just could not escape that commentary clip from Christopher Martin Jenkins who was a, a stickler 
for mm. fair play. And I think a lot of people in the Caribbean probably saw him as a representative of, a, of a, an outdated culture. I don't know. But there were so many elements at play then. Yeah, I don't think CMJ did anything particularly wrong. No, it just, no. you know, no. that was who he was. And he would have probably said it about an England, an incident involving an England. Uh, I captain. agree. I, just... think he's, I think he said something along the lines of, if that's not sharp practice, I don't know what it is, or something like that. It might have been yeah. gamesmanship, he said. Can't quite remember. But it wasn't exactly shouting from the rooftops, was it? No, no. But but uh, anyway, the, then we move on to Antigua, and of course, all hell did let loose there. Yeah. So um, tell us what happened in in Antigua, and uh, Viv having rather more interest in the press box than events on the field at one point, Peter. Well, again, this actually stemmed from the match being televised. Uh, what had happened was uh, England had. England batted first. There was some discussion over whether David Gower should actually play in this test match. He was out there covering the tour for the Daily or Sunday Express. And with no Gooch and Bailey possibly limping because he'd done his toe on the fridge door, there was some talk that Gower might be drafted in. That was soon put a stop to by Mickey Stewart, who said no. But they'd done all right, England. They didn't do great. But um, what was what had happened was that... Viv had picked Courtney Walsh, had insisted on picking Courtney Walsh, and there was, I think there was a local bowler, probably one of the Benjamins, that the Antiguans wanted to play. And, of course, there's a fierce inter-island rivalry. Walsh had taken a wicket, I think it was Lamb, possibly Robin Smith, and at the time he took that wicket, there was a section of the crowd in Antigua who'd been barracking Richards because uh, Walsh was playing and their guy wasn't playing. So Viv turned to this section of the crowd when that wicket was taken and gave them an old-fashioned salute. Now, this was picked up back in England on the via TV in certain newspaper offices as a V sign at a departing England batsman, which was not the case. That did not happen. But they then got back to us in the press box in Antigua, who didn't have the benefit of television, and someone or one or two newspaper editors said, we've just seen Viv giving the flick to, uh, to Smith or Lamb or whoever it was got to find out what this story is about so as the match developed there was a rest day in the middle of the test match as i recall and a couple of the reporters were asked to go and find viv and ask him what the hell was going on you know what's you can't do this to an england player give v signs on the field explain yourself sort of thing and viv just said listen it's a day off this is my island no thanks i'll, I'll speak to you after the match the next day, when they were about to resume, which was a Saturday, so I remember it, and I'd done a column with Viv for the Mail on Sunday, and the other story about that is that I was in my hotel room in the Halcyon Cove in, in Antigua, and I was suddenly aware of somebody on the balcony outside, because I was writing my column on my, my laptop, or Tandy as we called it in those days, and next door was Ian Todd of The Sun, who'd asked his number two, John Etheridge, to climb over the balcony from his <laughs> balcony to my balcony and peer in through the window to see if he could see what I was writing. <laughs> and he wrote up the next day, and I'd written a column with him saying, I've been under pressure, it's been a great series... I wouldn't have done this thing, blah, blah, blah. It was perfectly adequate, a column from Viv. The next day, I think it was Jim Lawton in The Express and uh, Paul Weaver, who was writing for The Guardian, I think, in those days, had written stories saying, we went to see Viv, Viv wouldn't see us, he's mad. Uh, and the front page of The Daily Express that day was a splash uh, by Jim Lawton saying, Viv's gone bonkers, he won't, you know, this is no way for anyone to behave. I've interviewed Muhammad Ali, I've done this, I've done that, and Viv is doing the game a disservice by not talking about it. So this was then shown, a fax of this front page was shown by one of our colleagues to Viv. 
just before the start of play that day, and he went tonto. So I'm unaware of this at this stage. We're in the press box waiting for the game to start, and all the players come out, and we're thinking, OK, there's 11 West Indies players, but Viv Richards is not among them. What's going on? Turn round, and he's in the press box. He's standing in front of Jim Lawton at the back of the press box. He's apps, he's sweating buckets. He's obviously enraged, and it's very hot in there anyway. And Jim is sort of sitting, cowering <laughs> under Viv, who's looming over him uh, and talking very, very quietly. I remember it very quietly, but very forcefully. And it was, it was electric. And I thought, I think he's actually going to punch him in the face now. But of course he didn't. He just stood there. I'm not even sure he said much at all. Just put himself between Jim Lawton and everyone else as if to say, you've come to my island, you're a guest here, or not even that, you've just behaved, this is what you've done, thanks very much. And it was, the whole thing was, um, you know, my, my heart rate is going up just remembering it now. Um, eventually, Viv was persuaded by Vic Marks, his Somerset teammate, who was also a colleague of ours in the press box, that it might be a good idea if he went out on the field and played the game rather than, um, rather than have this altercation with Jim. But, it, you know, from start to finish of that tour, it, it, there was, it was a volcano waiting to erupt, Viv was, and this was the moment he did, very, very quietly. It was a silent eruption, and it was absolutely extraordinary to watch. Well, on the field, England make a... Uh, uh useful 260 but then they run into the old firm of Greenwich and Haynes who went past 260 on their own uh, West Indies make 446 and then Ian Bishop gets to work he ends up with eight wickets in the in the match Kirtley Ambrose gets six uh, Bishop this uh, was a time before he he picked up his injuries and he was a he was really really quick uh, at that time and um, England come home uh, with a 2-1 defeat but with a great deal of of pride i mean simon what what is is that rose tinted spectacles are we are we being patronizing to an international side to say you lost 2-1 on the field but you produced a moral victory well i don't know if they produced a moral victory but they they'd certainly made strides under gooch's captaincy because this was the, this was the start of the gooch reign really i mean he you know he he'd taken over a few months earlier and it, and he was captain for the next three years and then they had made some progress they'd discovered a few players i mean alex stewart had, had, had done well i mean um, wayne larkins who we haven't really mentioned was a great success earlier in the series scored some crucial runs but faded towards the end you know, smith and lamb were a terrific force um there's a young nasser hussein there but we wouldn't see much of him particularly over the, the immediate future but there was a lot to take out of the tour certainly and and you know someone like angus fraser had um had done himself no harm so I think it was the start of something for, for Gucci's team, yes. But um, uh, 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 the ultimate uh, result was that they'd, they'd lost the series, but they'd given it a good go. So, Pat, uh, an England team, not quite rock bottom, but certainly on a low after the uh, Ashes series, on the way up against a West Indies team um, coming down from, from a very significant height, still probably five years before they reached the end of that kind of two or three golden generations in a row. Is that is that how you saw it? Yes, I would like to underline the importance of the preparation for England getting to West Indies. They, they, they actually worked hard and long and thought a great deal about the West Indies. And that Nehru Cup trip to India was very important also. But there was still a huge gulf, in my opinion, between class and experience in the West Indies camp, despite 
their aberrations and that England squad. That England squad was typical of so much of English cricket over that decade. Some really, really fine players who at that time and eventually in that squad, there was Lamb, Gooch, Smith, Stewart, Russell, Hussein and Fraser. I'd suggest that they all became or were considerable England players. But inconsistency was their problem, putting it all together. And the great players uh, hauled up some of the average players, sometimes to fine performances. But it was, all, it was all, always one step forward, one step back. Because a few months later, they went to Australia and they got mullered again, 1991. And they continued to, to disappoint at various stages. It was a gallant failure. Uh, and I think Gooch's um, uh, stature was massively enhanced on that tour. You know, after the age of 36, by then he averaged um, 36 in test matches as a batsman. After that, he averaged 51. Uh, he got 12 test match hundreds. He became a great player for three years. And he set a tremendous example. And he, he really, it was a rarity. He really did come through in his late 30s, early 40s as a test match batsman. So I think among England players, it was Gucci's tour, even though he only played in two test matches. So... In our time, speaking on behalf of the other two guys, I'd say it was one of the more gallant, admirable failures from an England team in the Test Series. Yeah, I think when, when we left the Caribbean, no one thought it had been a failure. In fact, it had been pretty much an unqualified success, bearing in mind how terrible they had been against Australia the previous summer. And I think they were rock bottom, Pat, by the way. I think they were absolutely rock bottom. Yeah, yeah. Um, to take some, some kids and a couple of old stages out and to come up with a plan which they then carried through and to be deprived of at least a share of the series by the rain, by Gooch's finger being broken. You know, if Gooch, I, I think you're absolutely right. If Gooch had played in the last two test matches, I think it would have been very different. And if it hadn't rained in Trinidad, and Gus, and if it hadn't rained in Trinidad, England may well have won the series, which would have been unthinkable at the start. In fact, it was so unthinkable because. I remember very clearly after the first test at Sabina Park and England winning, one of my colleagues told me, and he was mad, by the way, but he told me he was absolutely convinced that um, Sky TV was so desperate for something to show the folks back home that they'd actually paid the West Indies board to ask their team to throw the first test match, which was utterly <laughs> ludicrous. <laughs> but that's how unexpected and, uh, and against all the odds that first test match win was. And if nothing else... They won the first test match by an England side in West Indies for 16 years. So yep. I think it was a terrific effort. Well, I think we'll we'll wrap up on that point. We are the 80s and 90s cricket show, so it won't be the last time we hear a tale of what might have been because uh, that's certainly an, an England theme over those two decades. So it remains only for me to thank my guests, Peter Hayter, Simon Wilde and Pat Murphy. And I hope, gentlemen, to be able to speak to you again at some point in the future. Thank you. Thank you, Gary. Thank Thank you. So thank you for listening to that, the first episode of the 80s and 90s Cricket Show, sponsored by Anderton Law. We'll be back with more cricket from the 80s and 90s on all your podcast platforms very soon. Listener.